Father, I thank you, Lord, that your word to us shows us the way to you. I thank you for that, Father, for if we did not have it, we wouldn't know. And I'm so thankful, Father, that the way to you has been made available to us through the work of Christ and not by our own work. And although the world thinks that they work, they're working their way to you and that they have something to offer you that you need, when we come to the truth of what the scriptures say, we realize we have nothing. And you need nothing. And there is no way apart from what you've made available through Christ. And we so thank you for that. We thank you for a text today that reminds us of these things, but also shows us even more deeply how we can walk away from that truth and not even realize it. So I pray, Father, that each of us, those who know you and perhaps those in here that may not, will see something today in the text for the very first time that will draw us closer to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today we're in the second part of something we started last week. For those of you who were here, you'll remember this. This is a a moment along the way where Jesus was teaching his disciples about entry into the kingdom. Now remember the word kingdom is simply Jesus' term in that day for what we today would call heaven, but in specific terms, it's a reference to Jesus' time here on earth, ruling when he comes back at his second coming. And to be a part of that, to be here with him, means to have been saved, to have received salvation, to have believed in the gospel. All these are the same thing. And the disciples who have to run the church in his absence after his coming departure need to understand these things. And so last week we studied the first of two moments when, if you remember, women were bringing children to Jesus, asking Jesus to heal these kids, and the disciples objected at that intrusion. They told the women to take the children away, and then you saw Jesus correct them for having said that, and he told them that the kingdom of God existed for the sake of such as these. So in other words, what we learned last week was the very mission of the church will be to reach the people of this world who are weak and vulnerable and in need, people like children in that sense, people who come to the church looking for something that is earthly, food, uh, clothing, needs of that sort. They come with those needs. Our job is to turn them to a conversation about the gospel because even though we care about their bodies, we don't care about their bodies nearly as much as we care about their souls. We can feed them all day long and they still go to the hell if they don't know Jesus at the end of the day. So we want one of those things to lead to another of things. We want the thing they want to turn into the thing they need. That's the point. But in the process, we also learned that Jesus has children specifically in mind, not just people who are like children, metaphorically, but he also wanted his disciples to know that God can bring faith to children. Children are not out of reach of God's, whole, of God's spirit and of the gospel. Even a very young child can come to faith in Jesus, we learned last week. And so in that prior moment, Jesus wanted his disciples to get an attitude adjustment about what it meant to lead the church in the area of the kingdom. They had to see weak and vulnerable people as candidates for the grace of God. They needed to see children as candidates for the grace of God, for the the gospel. They had to expand their understanding of who it was that God was going to reach and how he was going to do that so that they didn't inadvertently restrict the gospel to people they thought it should be for. And that was the first lesson. Because the kingdom program, as I call it, which is a way of saying the work of the church to bring people to know the gospel so that they will enter the kingdom when it comes, hence the kingdom program, that program is fundamentally a process of seeing where God is working and then following him in that work. You remember the analogy I gave you months ago when we were studying a different chapter in this book about the metal detector being a picture of evangelism? Some of you may remember this. 
That is, as we meet people, we look for signs that that person may be receptive to the gospel, kind of like a metal detector looking for signs that you may have found treasure. And then if you get a positive signal from the person, you start digging, which is to say, you start talking to them about Jesus and the gospel. You take advantage of an opportunity because it looks like there might be potential there. And that can happen with someone who's young or old, someone who's rich or poor, Everyone is reachable because God is capable of reaching anyone. So we're not saving anybody, but we're looking for the people he's saving. And when we come across them, we dig. We ask them to believe. We try to encourage their response. That's the job that God has given us. All right, so that's your summary from last week. If you didn't come, look at that. You didn't even need to. You got the whole thing. All right, that's the first part. Now, it's time to turn the coin over because there's a second side to this story. That is, there's another moment that Matthew chooses to put next to each other in the narrative. He, he intentionally grabs these two moments and sticks them together because they form a single thought or a single idea kind of mixed together. And in the second encounter, look at what Matthew records next. Starts in verse 16. So chapter 19, verse 16. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, well, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? I stop there. All right, so Matthew says there's a man comes along. I don't think this is in the immediate moment of the earlier context. I think what G- Matthew has done is he has selectively taken a story that he knows of and puts it with the earlier one because he recognized there's something about these two that fit well together. And in this particular moment, there's a man who comes. He says, Jesus, how do I obtain eternal life? Now, if you go to Luke's version of this same account, Luke tells us this man is a ruler. Now, he's Jewish. So if he's a ruler, what that would tell you is he is a member of the Sanhedrin. That's the only kind of rulers there were at that time who were Jewish. Now the Sanhedrin was a council of Jewish men who ruled in religious matters over the people of Israel while under the authority of Rome. They were kind of a, a, uh, you know, a government in uh, exile, if you will, while in the land. And you, you also may remember from John's Gospel, people like Uh, Nicodemus, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, they were also members of the Sanhedrin and ultimately believers, all right? So here's a guy that's on the Sanhedrin. He's probably heard the things that everyone has heard. He's wanting to go find out more about this guy. And he comes and Mark tells us in his version that he kneels before Jesus and then begins to say what we read. And you think, well, if he's kneeling, maybe that means he's like Joseph of Arimathea or he's like Nicodemus. He already believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, Not so fast, because he calls Jesus rabbi or teacher, and that would would seem to indicate he's not fully convinced yet. And so what his kneeling is all about, it's about showing respect as a teacher, deference to Jesus, but yet at the same time, he's not quite clear on Jesus' identity. So he doesn't call him Lord, he doesn't show any indication that he's God. In fact, as we go farther in the text, it becomes clearly evident he does not know Jesus is the Messiah. But he asked Jesus, what good things should he do to obtain eternal life? And what he means is this, he knows from the Old Testament that the Lord has promised to resurrect the saints of the Old Testament, or believers within Israel, we could say. 
And the resurrection is the coming to life of a new body that you live in for eternity. This one's gone, the new one's come, you're in a new body. And in the resurrected state, you go into the kingdom and live there with Jesus. This is what we're all waiting for, okay? So he knows that's the future for the saint. And he's asking, I want to be in that future because he knows the alternative ain't good. So he's saying to Jesus, what do I have to do? What good things do I have to do to obtain that? His question is kind of remarkable in a way because it suggests that his thinking is actually contrary to the conventional thought of the day because the conventional thought of the day was a Jew was automatically guaranteed this outcome. That's what Jews thought. That's what they were taught. Generally, in that day, if you were Jewish, you were taught that going into the kingdom, look, let's just use modern terminology, going to heaven, they thought that was automatic simply because you were Jewish because they interpreted what God promised to Abraham and and onward to be a blanket assurance that if you were Jewish, you were in God's plan of salvation. So long as a Jew remained in good standing, which basically meant keeping the law, respecting the traditions, well then he or she was assured that they were heaven bound. That was the conventional thought. But that's the issue for this guy. The standard for being considered a good Jew, a Jew in good standing, had never been adequately defined by the rabbis. It was stated, but then left that way without any clarification. And that's an uncertainty, you know? You wonder at night when you're lying on the pillow and you're thinking to yourself, if I die tonight, where am I gonna be? You like to think, well, I know I'm gonna be with God, I'm gonna be in heaven, because I'm a good Jew, I'm in good standing, I meet the qualifications, but nobody could define them. So this guy knows that the standard for good being uncertain was a problem. How does he know for sure? How does he know that he's good enough? I mean, how much observance of the law is enough? How many laws, for example, can you break within the the overall canon of, of Old Testament law, 613 commandments or whatever they count now? How many of them can you break and still get to heaven? Did, did you need to equal a Pharisee's, uh, a Pharisee's righteousness? Because if that's the standard, man, that's tough. Or if it's a lower standard, what is it? Well, the rabbis would debate that question, certainly, but no one could come up with an answer in certainty from Scripture. So here's a man who's haunted by that uncertainty. And so he asked Jesus, maybe you could tell me, what is the standard? Notice what he says after Jesus offers his answer at the end of verse 17. Jesus says, you know, I'll get back to what he says in total, but notice the very end there where he says, keep the commandments. What's the man say? Which ones? What he's asking is this. Okay, there's a lot of law there, Jesus, right? There's a lot of law in the book of Moses. Which of those laws are the absolute minimum? What's the minimum standard? I mean, literally, it's what you do when you get into a college class. What do I have to do to get a C? You're, telling, you know, you're telegraphing it to the professor right up front. My heart's not in this. I just don't want to fail. What is the minimum? He's asking, is there a checklist of good works that a person has to do, or conversely, is there a list of sins you have to avoid? And if you do those minimum things, if you could, if you could give me a checklist, Jesus, I'd organize my life around hitting that mark, kind of like the professor telling me what I have to do to get a C. If you could give me that, look, I might do better. I'm not saying I'm not trying. I'm just saying I need to know the minimum. Generally, friends, that is the way every unbeliever at least among those who who are even concerned with what happens after they die. That is how every unbeliever thinks. Now, they're not all Jewish. It doesn't come down to that. It's a broader concept. The world assumes that God has set some minimum standard for behavior 
that you must meet to get to heaven. And generally, people assume that you meet that standard by doing good works, good things of one kind or another. And if you do bad things, well, you can even the scales in their mind by doing more good things to offset the bad things that you've done. And if you do enough good in balance with your bad over your lifetime, however they look at it, you end up going to heaven. That is the world's view. Now, you come at it in different perspectives, right? Different religions will propose different checklists on what they think God wants you to do. But every one of those systems suffers from exactly the same problem. How do you know when you've done enough to go to heaven? I mean, what is good enough? What is the passing score? 70%, 80%, 90%? I mean, what is it? How do you even know what God considers to be a good work? You know, there's different people think different things are good. There's things you think are good, other people think is terrible, and there's things other people celebrate that you think is horrible. We can't even agree on what good is. And if you aim too low, that is, if you aim below the standard that God sets because you didn't know what it was, and then you go to your death, and then you stand before him for your judgment, it's too late. You know, at that point, you'll know what the standard is, but you can't fix it. All right, so as this ruler is demonstrating, the world has no clear answer to this fundamental question. They only have guesses and opinions. And generally, here's how the guesswork goes. First, everyone agrees that a perfect person would merit entry into heaven. In other words, if you could find the perfect person who's never done anything wrong, no one would disagree, well, that person has probably you know, hit the minimum, certainly. They should be going to heaven. And among even the most arrogant, self-absorbed people you could probably find on earth, even those people will admit they're not perfect. Right? I mean, even if you just mis- misspell a word or you know, occasionally go too fast on the freeway, you're not perfect. You make mistakes. You don't obviously do everything right all the time forever. So... The world will agree that there is a, at one end of this spectrum, let's say, you could put perfect people, though none exist, but if you could get there, that would certainly be in heaven. Okay, that's one end, right? And likewise, the world will also agree that there are gotta be some people who have zero chance of going to heaven. I mean, if you press them to give an example of who would qualify as somebody who could never get into heaven, what's the one person that always comes to mind? Hitler. I mean, who did we pick before 1940? Have you asked that? I mean, what, what was the bad guy before that? I mean, it's like, I hate to say this, but almost thank goodness Hitler came along, but we'd have no one to put down here at this end of the scale. It's so weird how that's the only guy we think. Anyway, yes, you put Hitler down here, 100% agreement, you're not going to see him in heaven, okay? That's the world's way of thinking. So on the heaven end of the scale, we put people who are perfect, and on the hell end of the scale, we put people, you know, the worst of the worst like Hitler. But when you get to the middle, oh, that's where everything gets murky, right? In this imaginary scale that the world uses for heaven, somewhere between those two points, we assume God has put the cut line. And you got to get above that cut line. And that's where nobody agrees where that line is. That's the central flaw in the world's view of heaven. They assume that there is a standard, but no one knows what the standard is. And because the standard is unknown, the world lives in fear of death. Because there is no peace in that standard. They never know 
if they die where they're gonna be. They never know if God is happy enough with them. Every day, billions of people are wondering, are they good enough? Are they ready to face God? Will they be accepted if they face him? And then those same people make a mistake. They have a bad day. They do something wrong, and then the guilt comes. And then the worry sets in because maybe I just dropped below the line. And then they work, they do something. They make up for their mistake. They give some money, they say some prayers, uh, they pull out a rosary, they light a candle. How much penance is enough? I mean, how many candles is enough? And then they wonder about their loved ones, the ones who died. And they think, where are they? Did they make it above the line? Will I see them again? You know, if you've ever lived like that, you know that hamster wheel kind of life. That is, if you care about religion, granted, there are a lot of people out in the world who don't care a a whit about this. They're not even thinking about it. But for many, they do. They have a concern. They They have a side of them that appreciates that they should care, and they're forever chasing this invisible finish line, always wondering if they're gonna measure up when the day comes. That is the burden that the world carries every day, and I suspect many of you know exactly what it's like to live that way. That was the way the ruler was living. That was the way many Jews lived. That's the way many Jews today live, among other religions that don't know Christ yet. It is a life built on a fundamentally flawed view of God and heaven. And what we're about to hear now is Jesus correcting this man on both counts. That is, on a wrong assumption about himself and a wrong assumption about God's standard. And it begins in verse 17. Jesus begins by asking, why are you asking me what is good? There's no one who is good, or there is one only who is good, he says. In Luke's version, the exchange is recorded slightly differently. It goes like this, Luke 18, 18. A ruler questioned him and said, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In Luke's version, the man calls Jesus a good teacher. In Matthew's version, the man is said to have uh, said good things. What good things should I do? So what do we do when we have two versions that say things slightly differently? You put them together. It's not that either is wrong, it's that each saw it partly. So the two versions together, this is what the man asked. Good teacher, what good things must I do to enter heaven? And Jesus' response is essentially the same, no matter which account you read, Luke or Matthew. And in that response, he corrects the wrong assumptions that the man is making. The first thing Jesus asks is, why are you calling me good? Because only God is good. Now, in Jewish tradition, you never called a rabbi good. This is actually very out of keeping with the norm in that day because the Jews recognized that only God was truly good. So you didn't call a man good. It was, it was on the verge of blasphemy to do that. And yet this guy calls Jesus good. Now, he uses a Greek word here for good that means intrinsically good or inherently good. So what he is saying to Jesus is this, good teacher, meaning I know you're a man of good character. I know you have a good nature. And yet what he means is this, Jesus is good in a relative sense. It's the same way you would say I'm good. I mean, you wouldn't say that meaning I'm equal to God, but you might still use the term. What do you mean when you say it? What did he mean when he said it? He wasn't suggesting Jesus was as perfect as God or sinless like God. He just meant you're good compared to other rabbis. You're good compared to other people. It's a relative 
type of good. Technically, this is what the man actually said. Jesus, you're better. That's what he meant. You're better. That's kind of ironic because had the man known Jesus' true identity, he actually was correct. Jesus is good in the literal sense. Had the man had saving faith, he would have been saying, you're good, and Jesus would have said, why do you call me good? And he would have said, because you're God. That's not what he meant. He was simply acknowledging that he's above the cut line. It's like he's saying, I know you've made it over the line. I'm asking you how you got there. Jesus corrects the man. He says, you know, only God is intrinsically good. Now listen to what this means, and don't miss this. If you come for anything tonight, this is the one thing you need to know. This is what Jesus just said. God's standard for measuring goodness is not relative. God does not grade goodness on a scale, okay? It's not like weight or height or intelligence. You are not somewhat good and the neighbor next to you may be a little better and me may be a little better. That is false. That is a lie. That is not true. Goodness, according to God, is a single point. You are either good or you are not. And who is good? God alone is good. Which is to say, goodness, according to God, is not being better than someone else. It's being as good as God. If you are not as good as God, you are not good. There is no sliding scale. The Bible says this in Psalm 14:1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, they are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds and there is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God, and they have all turned aside and together have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So some people may be better than others, yeah, but no one's equal to God, and equaling God is the standard that God himself has set for entry into heaven. Do you know why the world has never been able to establish and agree upon a standard for how good you have to be to get to heaven? Because they don't like the answer. If they'd ever heard it at all, they don't like it. The entire world operates thinking that their personal goodness must rise above some imaginary cut line that they conveniently put somewhere in the middle of a scale that has Hitler at one end and the fictitious, non-existent, perfect person at the other end. Everyone assumes they are above that line. Everyone. I have yet to meet a person who cares about this topic, that is, who says, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm below the line, but I'm working on it. No one says that. Everyone is happy to admit that Hitler exists, ergo, I'm fine. You know, when you can pick that person and put them down at the bottom and call them the failure poster child, of course we all feel good about ourselves. You know what? As long as you got... You know, that cranky neighbor or that good-for-nothing boss or that brother-in-law that keeps cheating on his wife, well, you feel good about yourself by comparison. You're comparing yourself to the wrong person. You can't assume that because you pay most of your taxes or you don't steal except for that login to Netflix from your neighbor. (laughs) Or you you never lie, well, except in circumstances when it's necessary. I mean, that's our life, friends. We all do this. You know, your sins are different than mine, but you've got them and I've got mine, and the point is the same. Everyone assumes they're above a line because we conveniently put all our problems in a place where it doesn't count. 
Jesus says God's standard for going to heaven is way higher than you or the world has ever imagined it to be. To get into heaven, the standard is not 70%, 80%, not even 90%. The standard is perfection, 100%. One sin at any point in your earthly life disqualifies you from heaven forever. Which is why Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In that well-known verse, Paul When he says the glory of God, do you know what he means? That's a way of Paul describing the standard of God for entry into heaven, the goodness of God, the glory of God. He's saying everyone has sinned, and as a result, all of us have fallen short of the standard that God has set for entry into heaven. All of us. But this guy doesn't get it. So Jesus, after hearing the man say, help me figure out how to get into heaven, here's what Jesus does. He starts to play along with this man's bad assumption. And he does so so that he can expose it. And so he answers the ruler saying, well, if you want eternal life, keep the commandments. All right? Then the man says, which ones, right? Now you can clearly see by that response that he is still assuming that God grades on the curve, right? You don't ask that question, which ones, if you think the standard is perfection, do you? You ask it because you assume it's not perfection. I mean, come on, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. I mean, nobody's perfect. So... How good do I have to be? And so what Jesus does next in playing along is he starts to list a few of the Ten Commandments. And he consciously selects certain of the commandments that he knows will please the man. If you wonder why he picks the ones he did, he picked the ones he knew the man would say he did. Because look at the ones he picks here. These are the ones that regulate our dealings with other people in in culture. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, bear false witness, and so on. What he's doing is he's setting a trap for this man's ego because he wants to expose this this false assumption the man is making. The first false assumption the man made was assuming that the standard is less than perfect. That's the first wrong assumption. He's also making a second wrong assumption about himself. And that wrong assumption Jesus is now working to expose. He picks laws that every upstanding Jew would have claimed to have kept his whole life. Not just this guy. You couldn't find an upright Jew who wouldn't have said, I've never murdered. I've never committed adultery. I don't lie. I honor my parents. I mean, you know, these are not things that Jews walked around saying, yeah, I have trouble with murder. (laughs) No one does that, right? No righteous Jew murders or commits adultery or dishonors his parents. So he just says eagerly, I've kept all these things from my youth. I mean, the guy's feeling pretty good right about now, right? And then the trap comes. Because notice what the man says next. He says, what am I still lacking? Now think about why he asked that. Because he was just been told by a man he apparently respects, or why would he have asked the question? He's just been told by Jesus, just do these six laws and you can enter heaven. And the man just said, I've done them. Why doesn't he just get elated at this point? Why doesn't he just run down the street skipping, you know, saying, I'm in heaven, I'm in heaven, right? I mean, why is he not satisfied? You can tell he's not satisfied. Look, he assumes he's still lacking something and he wants to know what that is. Why? You know why? Because something inside him knew Jesus' checklist wasn't any better than any of the other checklists that he'd ever heard from anyone else. You can ask any religious person, what is the standard for heaven? And you will always get an answer. They'll always be different, but you'll always get an answer. How is it everybody knows? 
and yet nobody knows. No one agrees, the rules are always changing, everyone has their own perspective, and if you care about this in a sincere way, you know, just academic honesty would force you at some point to say, I don't think anybody knows what they're talking about. And you get a new answer from someone else and you're gonna have the same reaction this guy had. Well, what else is there? I mean, is there something more? Because in the end, your conscience keeps convicting you. You can do all six of those laws, and he probably had done them at least as far as he knew, as far as he could, and yet I don't think he felt any certainty. He wasn't going to bed at night saying, I'm good to go. He was waking up every day wondering, what do I have to do today? Because inside every person, God has put a conscience, and your conscience is there for one reason, to witness or to testify against you. Against you, to convict you, to reveal a flaw when it's there so that it's always telling you you cannot stand up to or measure up to the standard of heaven. That's what your conscience is. It's not there for self-esteem. Self-esteem is a fancy word for pride. You don't need any more of that. Trust me, you got plenty. You need more Christ-esteem. And what the conscience does is tell you over and over again, you aren't all that you think you are. You aren't the person your dog thinks you are. You aren't the person that your friends think you are. You have real issues inside you. And the purpose in that from God's economy is to drive you relentlessly to a solution that ultimately does deal with the problem. So even when someone gives us a checklist for heaven that we believe that we're actually meeting, if we think that, something inside us still is not satisfying. And that was this man's problem. He knew instinctively. He was lacking something. He wanted to know what that is. Jesus gave him a list, and he's like, nah, just another list. Friends, that's why there's no peace for anyone who works their way to heaven. I don't care what religious system you're under. Pick one. Taoism, Buddhism, Islam, Mormonism, Catholicism. They're all trying to do it the same way. Work their way to heaven. Find a set of solutions, whether it's lighting candles, saying rosaries, uh, you know, bowing 25 times a day, praying at five in the morning. Give me the list, I'll do it, and God will let me in heaven. Every one of those people still feels that burden, that it's not enough. I wonder if I've met the mark. And it's, it's the burden that Jesus says is absent when you follow him. His yoke is light. Because it's not a yoke, a burden of working your way to some in, undefined, always moving standard that you can never quite be sure you've hit. Anyone working their way to heaven is forever trapped in a cycle of doing and then failing and then guilt and then worry and doing again until you're dead and then you realize that was never the way you get there anyway. And God has programmed our conscience so that we will never be satisfied with setting our own standard or defining our own method. The problem is the world's flawed understanding both of God's standard and of themselves. On the one hand, you make a bad assumption about what the grade is, but on the other hand, you also make a bad assumption about how it is that you access God. That is, we assume it's a recipe or a checklist or a process by which we approve, or God rather, approves us, and Jesus is trying to tell this man, you're wrong on both sides. The standard is impossibly high. You cannot meet it. It is the standard of equaling God. And secondly, no checklist will satisfy you because it won't work. And so now he exposes the man's wrong thinking on that second point, verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, well then go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. 
But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Now, at first you wonder, what is this about? Because it seems almost as though Jesus was giving a recipe or a checklist, right? But it's not what it seems. Verse 21, Jesus tells the man, if you want to receive eternal life, sell all that you have, give that money to the poor, and then follow me. And then in adding just one more task to the six that he already gave him, this is just one more. He just says, do this one thing and you will be complete. Now, you might think at the man hearing this, he would say, okay, I'm six-sevenths of the way there. You've just given me the last piece. It's a tough one. I'll give you that. It's tough. But heaven, hey, heaven's heaven. I'll do it. No, what does he do? He goes away grieving because, as Matthew says, he was very rich. Now, here's the thing that's going on in this guy's head. Jesus didn't pick some random requirement. You know, he could have said, stand on your head and hold your breath for a minute. I mean, he didn't pick some random requirement, right? He picked something he knew the man would not be willing to do. The ruler was so attached to the world and to his wealth that if heaven required giving it up, he couldn't accept it. But here's here's the mistake you can make in interpretation here. It's not as though he's going away sad because he's sad he's not gonna go to heaven. No, 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 no. The world never does that. You will never find someone who, when you tell them, here's what it takes to go to heaven, they walk away from you saying, you're right, I must be going to hell, oh well. Have you ever heard that? I have never heard anybody say that sincerely. You know what they say though? Your standard's wrong. And that's the problem here. He leaves sad, not because he concluded he wasn't going to heaven. He leaves sad because he's rejecting Jesus' rules. That is, he does not agree with the answer and he said that he has yet again failed to find the answer. Once again, he leaves unsatisfied. That's the issue because he was rich and he wasn't gonna turn away from his riches because some yahoo told him that's the way to go to heaven. And that's how we feel when people give us lists that we don't like, right? The world will say that it wants to know God's standard for entering heaven, but here's the true reality. The only standard they want is the one that meets their desires, right? You go to one religion and you're told, here's what you have to do according to our way of thinking in order to get into heaven, and then you assess it on the basis of whether you like those rules or not, and you say, hmm, I don't think that's what I want to do. So you go somewhere else, you find a second religion, they have a separate set of rules, you take a stock of those, you're like, man, it's still not for me. Then you go to a third place, you shop around till you find a religion that has a set of rules you tend to like. And then you throw yourself into their rules. Well, wouldn't you know it, those happen to be God's rules. How convenient. I mean, that's what people do. They jump from being an unbeliever in a Baptist church to being an unbeliever in a Catholic church to being an unbeliever in an Islamic mosque to being an unbeliever in Amway to being an unbeliever in, I mean, I'm not making fun of Amway. I'm saying they'll just pick, you know, to, to, to some bowling league, to some other thing. I mean, whatever their religion becomes, it's simply a recipe of living according to someone else's rules, which seems to satisfy that guilty conscience at least for a while. And if you ever wonder about people who do that, they leave a Protestant religion, go to Catholic or vice versa, you know, don't be misty-eyed about that. It doesn't mean they're getting saved. Who knows what's going on in their heart? Half the time, it's they liked that style of legalism better than that style of legalism. That's usually what it means, apart from true faith. This man came to Jesus seeking an answer, and at first, he liked what Jesus told him. Oh, six things I already do. I'm liking your list. Oh, wait a minute. Sell all that I have? Not on my list. Now I've got to go find another guy. And he walks away sad. 
But inside him is a voice, and that voice never stopped nagging him, telling him there has to be a real standard for heaven, and I want to know what that is. That's how the world feels all the time. And again, some of you may know that. But if you look at Jesus' answer, he actually gave the man the full answer. He gave the man the standard. He gave him the checklist. In verse 21, when it says complete, the Greek word that Jesus uses for complete, do this and you will be complete, is teleos. And in Greek, that is the word that can also be translated perfect. So what Jesus said to the man is, if you want to enter heaven, you have to be perfect. Now, we just said that's true, right? You have to be equal to God's standard. You want to go to heaven? Oh, yeah, there's a way. We wouldn't be in this room if there wasn't a way. But the way is you have to meet the standard. You have to be perfect. How do you become perfect? Well, Jesus told the man. In effect, what he said is, stop trusting in your wealth, turn your back on the world, and come follow me. If you want to be perfect, you need Jesus, not the world. And if the man would have done those things in faith, obviously... Not only would he have received the kingdom, inheriting eternal life, but look what Jesus added. He said you'd also have treasure waiting there. It's like a win-win. Not only would you have gained the kingdom for having turned away from the earth and from the wealth of the earth, but ultimately you'd be restored to a better form of it in the kingdom. So the standard to enter heaven or the kingdom is perfection, and the means for obtaining perfection is found in following Christ. And so to be specific for anyone who is at all unclear, I'm saying this, to enter heaven, you must equal the righteousness of God, that is the perfection of God, but you and I are all imperfect. Before you even knew that this was true, before you could talk, before you were out of your diapers, you were already imperfect. And I don't care how many good works you do, I don't care if you have all the right good works and you do them incessantly until you're dead. All the good works in the world cannot erase one sin. Right? That's not how the math works, okay? As soon as you have a sin, you're not perfect. Game over. So if you've got to go to heaven by being perfect, and you are imperfect, and all of us are, what do we do with that? What the Bible says is, the only way you can meet the perfect standard of God is if you receive God's perfection granted to you. Because you don't have it in yourself, and you will never have it. An analogy I can give you is that of taking a test. I want you to imagine for a moment, you're taking a test to pass a class and the test requires that you get 100%. If you, if you do not get 100% on the test, that is if you don't complete perfect, a perfect test score, then in this particular college course, that will mean you fail the course. It's a very tough course. You sit down at the desk to take this final exam. You have 10 questions, we'll keep the math easy for you. You gotta get 10 out of 10 to get 100%. And you take a look at your test, and before you even start, you glance down, you realize you don't know any of them. You're dead, you're you're failed, you're done. I mean, it's just all over but for the crying at that point. You, You look next to you, though, in this class, and who's seated next to you but the star pupil? Jesus. And he's got the same test in front of him, and he's already done, and he's got 100%. He's gonna pass the class. Well... You're resigned to your fate when the teacher walks down the aisle to claim the test, but at the very last moment, before the tests are picked up, out of the blue, without realizing it, Jesus has grabbed your test score off your desk and grabbed his and swapped with you. And then the teacher comes by, picks, picks Jesus' up, looks at him and goes, well, Jesus, you failed, and looks at you and says, you passed. That, friends, is the gospel. Said another way, but that's the gospel. You needed 100%, you couldn't do it, Jesus did it for you, and he gave you his test score. And he took your sin, 
He took your failure. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Notice that, the righteousness of God. Say it this way. So that we may gain the perfection of God in him. That's the gospel. It's called the great exchange by some. We receive credit for Jesus' perfect sinless life, which we couldn't live, and Jesus took our sin on himself when he died on the cross. And what made that exchange possible? Merely your faith in the fact of it. Your belief in what I just said is how God then credits you with the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. Paul says it plainly in Ephesians 2.8. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And then he adds this, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Your salvation is an act of God's grace manifested through faith, and it precludes the possibility that any of us sit around claiming that we had anything to do with it because we had nothing to do with it. It was by God's power alone. You won't have anybody in heaven boasting you did anything at all to contribute to your salvation. So let me ask the question that I hope some of you are asking, because I suspect many of you knew what I was going to say when I told you here's what the gospel means. At least I hope so. But you might ask me at this point, why did Jesus give this man a checklist for entering heaven, that is sell your possessions, give the money, why did he give him a checklist when we know that that's not how you get to heaven? Well, because you have to read between the lines. He did give him a checklist, but the checklist only had one point on it. Stop trusting in your own works and start following me. That was the checklist. The earlier part about sell your possessions was simply to demonstrate to the man himself that he wasn't willing to do anything that Jesus asked of him. And look, if you think Jesus is God and he says you can go to heaven if you sell your possessions, you know what you do? You sell your possessions. But it's not because you sold your possessions you go to heaven. It's simply to illustrate or to emphasize or to prove you believe in him, in his word. That what he said mattered, so you did it. It's a test, a test of the faith that the man evidently did not have. He was exposing his dependence on earthly things, but also his unwillingness to obey his word. This man is a perfect representation of every unbeliever on earth. That is, of everyone, including us, before we came to faith. Whether we were rich or not, whether we were Jewish or not, we all depended on something in this world. We were all searching in futility for some standard or way that we can get ourselves to heaven, and yet we were all feeling like, yeah, we don't have the full story. And look what God told Israel from the very beginning about this problem. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 11, he says, this commandment which I command to you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of it, uh, your reach. It's not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven to get it for us and make us hear it that we observe it, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will cross the sea for us to get it so that we may hear it and we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth, in your heart, that you may observe it. In that law, here's what Moses was saying to Israel. He was saying, when God commands you to do as I say and please me, that's not so hard. You don't need someone to go to heaven and find out what God's checklist is. That's what the ruler wanted. You don't need to go searching the world over for a method of earning God's approval so that you can enter heaven because earning your way to heaven is simply impossible. So the standard being too high, the checklist being non-existent, instead, 
Moses says, it's actually pretty easy. God has made it easy for you. It's the word near you in your mouth and in your heart, the word of confession of faith. That's what he's referring to. Paul tells us that in Romans. That if you believe in him, if you trust in the fact that he claims to be God and died in your place, then that confession saves you. That word is enough. All the other stuff you don't need because it wasn't gonna work anyway. So look, I got two things to say to two different groups of people in this room before we finish. First, if you do not believe in the gospel, you have not heard this before, you have never accepted it before, this is new to you. If you walked in here thinking that because you belong to some religious uh, group, you did a bunch of things that told you to do, you were obedient, you went there every week, you kind of did the rigmarole because they told you to do the rigmarole, and you thought, well, that basically qualifies me because I'm better than the average person, you're going to hell. That is not how it works. Jesus said, no one is good but God alone. You're not good enough. Stop trying. It's not going to work. But here's the easy part. You can stop that and go to heaven. You just have to accept that someone's already done all that for you. Jesus has already done it all. That's why he said it is finished on the cross. What's finished? The work to get you to heaven. Just accept it. Just believe in it. Say, Jesus, I believe you died for my sin. I realize now that's what this is all about. I want that, and I want to stop working. Done. You're in heaven. I'll see you in the kingdom. And you didn't come here by accident. You didn't come here by accident. You came here to hear this message. God wanted you to hear it. He's gonna ask you to make a decision. Make that decision. No one's gonna ask you to do anything in here. Not gonna stand up, make any big noise about it, whatever. It's between you and him. Don't walk out of this room not doing it. God forbid. That's somebody on here, maybe. But then the second group, the believer in here, the ones who already know the gospel. You came in today to be edified. Let me edify you on this. Even though you know that you're not saved by your works, ask yourself why you're doing your works. And if you have any inkling at all that you're doing these works because you think you need to hold on to something that you got by grace or because you're afraid that you can work your, you know, sort of lose your, your way, slip your way out of the grace of God and end up back where you were, let me take that off you right now. <laughs> you, you're not good enough for heaven now either. You'll never be. Look, if you're worried that you're not good enough for heaven, let me just assure you, you're not. We can just settle that right now. Stop worrying about it. If you could have ever gotten there on your own, that would have been the method. So as you do what you do, whether you serve here or you do something somewhere else, you're not doing it for God. Not, not in the sense that he needs this, that you, that you owe it to him. In the sense that you have to do it or otherwise you can't go to heaven. Take that away. Do what you do out of a joy knowing that there's no burden. You've got no burden. You've, you've been saved. It's done. It's over. You've got no burden. So now do it because you want to. Do it because it's fun. Do it for the joy of the master. Just do it because in, in the service, God uses it to do better things in your life. Don't do it out of guilt. You have no guilt. You have no condemnation in Christ. None. You're not a good person, but you're under no condemnation. Those two things are okay. You can be, you can be a bad person. That is intrinsically, we're all sinful. And at the same time, be perfectly good with God because Jesus was perfect and you got credit for his test score, Okay. Take that away today and don't let the enemy rob you of that joy. Let's pray. Dear Father, sometimes the gospel, Father, just needs to be preached again for all our sakes. And Father, I thank you that in the text today we heard that again, that we're saved by the grace alone of your choice of us and in the work of Christ for our sake and nothing of our own. Thank you, Father, for that. Thank you that you would save the likes of us by it. And Father, for any of us who are still troubled by the burden of seeking our own way to heaven, let it be gone now by a recognition that Jesus is the way. And for those who know his grace but have still at times
thought we can add to it, Father, take that burden as well. Let us serve in the freedom and the knowledge that we have already reached the perfection required by the work of Jesus. And with that, Father, we just serve in joy. Thank you for that reminder. Send us out of here, Father, with joy to live it out. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.